And now, do you like Prince movies? Hey everybody, this is Do You Like Prince Movies? I'm Alex Papadimus. I'm Wesley Morris, and boy am I in a bad mood. <laughs> this is starting off really well so far. I don't know why, I'm just in a crappy mood. I, I, I will all survive, don't worry. I also still don't think I've recovered from the mistake I made on Sunday of watching um, that Game of Thrones finale without having seen like the other three seasons. It wasn't even me taking your advice, by the way. That was um, not really my advice. My advice wasn't wait until the very end of a season. <laughs> no, the, your advice was actually to watch you know the entire season. But yeah, I I mean um, I was saying you could probably pick it up from context. And, you know, yeah. as a smart person and just sort of you get the, you know, you get the feel for things and they, you know, they tease, they give the big, the thing in the beginning, they tell you, you know, what's going to be important. They flash little things for anyway, you that you can know about. Before I ask you a lot of questions about that, we are going to talk about Jurassic World this week. We're going to talk about the fourth season of Veep and the show in general, because you and I have never really discussed it. And we're going to talk about our book of the month. Finally, Paul Beatty's the sellout. Um, so anyway, I, I watched it. I it's a weird thing to watch something that you feel you have some vague familiarity with. But I don't know. I don't know how you felt watching it. I'm sure for a person who has watched this show every week since it started or or, you know, is caught up with all the episodes and has possibly read the books. Watching this parade of just like awful things happen. Maybe this is what happens every week on this show, but it just was especially strange to me because it seemed entirely set up for to shock people. It didn't seem like there was any build up to any of this. It wasn't like that week that it wasn't like the week that um, that Adriana died in the forest. That you know that beautiful episode of mm-hmm. television, on like where Sopranos, you knew. Yes. Yes, when you knew that that ep- you knew what was going to happen and you were dreading it all week because just according to the way the show worked, you know, she had to die and she had to not I mean maybe yeah. not in the way that she did, but you knew what was going to happen. I don't was there a setup for this? I watched it with some friends who just wouldn't speak to me during <laughs> the entire episode. They just screamed and like howled and 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 expressed great shock and the minute it was over I was like I got to go home. Uh <laughs> So what what was what happened? I mean, well, you don't even have to spoil it, I guess. I just want to know what that was like for you. Well, okay. I mean, spoilers on though because I I I, I need to clarify which of the twelve terrible things this you're is the thing to right. So right, right. anybody who didn't watch this, come back next. You know, whenever when you have when you if get you around care, to it, if, you, if the internet has not already spoiled, that's well, yeah. Obviously, if you care, if the internet is not already spoiled it for you, and you're trying to keep a spoiler blackout, please, you know, click out for a moment. Um. So wait, are you talking about the? Are you talking about the walk of shame specifically? Or um, are we I'm talking, talking about, about the walk of John shame? Snow? And I'm talking about the yes, I'm talking about John Snow and the walk of shame. The Walk of Shame just seemed like everything I've heard about this show at its most flagrant. Well, look, I had I almost I mean, that was that was uh, that was insane. 
Right. I, but wait, as I can was, you just do me a favor? Yeah. Can you set this up and explain like why, not so much why it happened, but yeah. like. Yeah, I can do it very quickly. Is uh, Cersei in for uh, political purposes empowered a a very old fundamentalist religious sect that has had kind of fallen basically spun away from the sun and had no power in Westeros anymore, but still kind of still existed. Um, uh, Jonathan price as the high sparrow. She took this guy who was just a, you know, a religious leader uh, and made him you know sort of all powerful. And he proceeded to first prosecute her enemies for their crimes, which was kind of the point because she was trying to get at queen Marjorie who was married to her son Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so she, she, th- that was and th- there was no real reference to that this week. And so you don't even really remember why, how it started. But then he immediately turned on her. I mean, he turned on everybody, basically. And like she because she is also an adulterer and she's also, you know, so they they basically they empowered like they're, it's like I'm going to put Al Qaeda in power and, and have them run everything and have them get all my enemies because they're really good at getting people, you know, and then suddenly they mm-hmm. get you as well. And it's a little so Cersei experience and blowback. Um, mm. and which led to her being imprisoned and she was in prison for a while and like they wouldn't feed her and everything. And she was drinking water off the floor and the way oh that my she got, how many episodes do we have to watch that? It was like four or five. It was kind of wow. a long time and they would just check in periodically and you know, you would. It, so it, when you would, when you said that like at some week, some week when, when the show, when this season had started and, and I was telling you that I was going to try to catch up and you gave me the advice to maybe just think about just watching this season from the beginning and you would express some, at some point disappointment that you would express exa- uh, exasperation, I guess things that had been developing on the show like you just were thinking about maybe not watch not not watching it but you were frustrated well i mean yeah there's been a it's been kind of a roller coaster because this is the first season where they've they've run out of book now they've burned through all of the george rr martin source material Mm -hmm. like i think they are Mm -hmm. now i have not read the books but i think my, my understanding is that they are now up to the point that George R. R. Martin is up to in terms of people's arcs. They've j- jumped ahead a little bit. And so now they kind of don't from here on out, they're going to determine some kind of a future for these characters. And they've started doing that already. So they've, they're off the map and they're inventing their own. This is David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the guys who are the you know uh, developers of the TV show. Um, they're inventing their own sort of futures for these characters now. And sort of for good and for ill it's I, I think it speeds things up and they're kind of bringing threads together which is probably the thing the last time i talked about this that was probably the last thing that i was complaining about and we haven't talked about it in a while and a lot of things have changed since then a lot of like messed up things have happened um our, our grantland's own uh, network has talked about this he is the maester he is the guy who does the you know he, he's read the book jason conception jason conception has read all of this stuff and answers people's questions about it and is there he's the guy that i tweet to when i need to know if the unsullied have the twigs and the berries or just the twig or if the twig itself the whole twig and berry situation is not present that's who i ask um oh lord <laughs> he's and he's immediately was on the spot with an answer to that question yeah, my no, wife and I, I mean, were like, "So, what did they have down there?" And <laughs> there's, I was like, "I know a guy who can tell me the answer to that." Um, not his, only that, but well, go on. Well, I'm he's going to interrupt you. He's read all of this stuff. Um, he knows, you know, 
I'm sorry, I completely forgot my train of thought because I was thinking about twigs and berries. I apologize. I got to, you know, start thinking about the unsullied. But no, his point was, and I think this is true, what you're seeing now in the absence of a story to follow or slightly diverge from is the TV show creators trying to engineer George R. R. Martin-like moments. There is a moment, I don't know if you did, did you see the Red Wedding? Were you there for the no, Red Wedding? I've, you I'm telling two you, two seasons I've, in, right? I've only seen... I did not see the red wedding. There's an episode where the, there's a thing. Basically, there's a wedding and a bunch of characters that you've spent a lot of time caring about just get just killed, just straight up, just offed. And it's like f- there's like four major character deaths, I think, in like one sequence. And it's just it, it is the it's a high water mark for like, oh, you like these people? Like, that's the point of Game of Thrones in general, I think, is that they're, you know, they're like, don't get attached. And the more you get attached and like there's, you know, all the theories sort of coming out after this finale are like it does, you know, does no good deed go unpunished in Westeros, which is probably true. All these people die. I uh, like so the extra Westeros uh <laughs> thing that happened in my little universe which is that game of thrones is now going to start killing people on other shows <laughs> it's just, it's a look out effect. selena meyer it is a ripple effect throughout all of hbo just suddenly, suddenly people are just getting you know their heads chopped off on silicon valley and stuff like that um which anyway, i don't so, i think could happen so yeah no uh so basically what it is is they're now trying to engineer red wedding like moments mm-hmm. out of whole cloth and that strikes it has struck some people as sadistic i'm in i'm somewhat in that camp i mean i'm i'm of two minds it's like you don't you know we've we've talked about this before in terms of like we had a conversation a long time ago about whether or not it was kind of racist that there's only there's no only white people in westeros since it's a made-up world and you could do whatever you wanted right it's not historical there's no history to be hewed to you know, you're not, it's, there's no history. There's no, you can't be historically inaccurate on a show like this. So it's like, okay, this is a misogynist medieval world. That's what the point of that scene is where she's, you know, she's walking, forced to do this walk. Shame. Shame. It's a shame. shame. And I'm of two minds because it's like, yes, it is a sadistic thing shame. to do to a character to make somebody do, you know, to, and, but at the same time, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it, if you're going to depict misogyny, it like might like you can't really slander misogyny and make it seem, you know, it's, it's like it's a bad thing and it should look like a bad thing. It should look horrible. Like and this is a horrible thing happening right. to somebody. But there is also the element of like this has not been a very fun show to watch for this amount of the, the, for this. This period has been has gotten really dark. You've missed some really dark things. You actually like arguably. I mean, I, this was this was the most disturbing thing, just because it went on and on and on, you know. But there no, was... it lasted. I mean, it was a weird thing to yeah. devote that much time to with like that little filmmaking. I don't know. I just was surprised by how basically shot and composed a lot of that episode. And I know that you know a lot of I hear a lot of people talk about how beautiful the show is and how much you know great, how good the show looks and how well directed a lot of it was. I was not particularly bowled over by it. Yeah, I actually don't think it's that well directed. I think it's you okay. Know, it, I, it, I did not find that terrible. I think impressive. it's remarkably movie like for television, but I don't. I don't think mm-hmm. within that, I'm never like, oh, look at that shot is amazing. You know, right. like I don't. Right. I, and and not in you know, yeah. In general, I think they do a good job of achieving scope on the small screen. But even that, it's like that's not as crazy of a thing anymore because everybody has a giant TV that's in the movie aspect ratio. You know, so it's not. I don't know. And uh, computers. Exactly, and you'll be all your computers. You know, that's always. 
I'm just saying. I'm not saying that it doesn't count if you get a beautiful shot that you made with your computer, but I also think it's slightly little less impressive. I just wrote about a movie from from Sweden that uses no computers and has one well, it uses some but not in the what's the visually amazing about it. It's called a pigeon set on a on a branch, the contemplating reflecting on its on, on existence. And it's just got this great sequence where a horse comes into a bar. A guy on a horse comes into a bar and is like kicks all the women out. It's it's actually oddly not crazy to think about that and from a Game of Thrones standpoint from Anyway, what does the bartender go, say? The bartender does nothing, but there is there's a bartender joke for the second time it happens in the movie. It's really funny, actually, now that you put it that way, because it, it's a joke. It's a joke. Sure. And, the, and this guy, the director, Roy Anderson, really he gets what the joke is, and he knows that you have to put the joke with the bartender, and he does the second time it happens in the movie. Um, it's, it's, that's very funny that you said that. Um, anyway, we got to go. Uh, I should. We should also say to the, all the people, the like hundreds of people who came out last week for that Game of Thrones event, the Watch of Thrones event at that bar in Brooklyn. Um, sorry you didn't get in, and um, it was a pleasure to hang out with you. And thanks for coming. I had to leave. I had no idea what was going on, and I had a fight with the guy who owned the bar. So I decided to like slurp my drink down and stand outside and cross my arms and fume. But Grantland fans, how long have outside, you been in this bad mood? Wait, I've been in a bad movie. Is that when it started? It it I might have started then, but I hung out with these people who listen to the to, to all the podcasts and read the site and love Game of Thrones and um thanks for cheering me up. I appreciate it. Yeah, God bless you all, especially people <laughs> listening to this podcast. We'll be back in particular with, uh, Jurassic World. You just went and made a new dinosaur? Yeah, it's uh kind of what we do here. The exhibit opens to the public in three weeks. Mr. Mizrani wanted me to consult with you. You want to consult here or in my bungalow? That's not funny. <laughs> A little funny. We'd like you to evaluate the paddock for vulnerabilities. Why me? I guess Mr. Mizrani thinks since you're able to control the raptors. See, it's all about control with you. I don't control the raptors. It's a relationship. It's based on mutual respect. That's why you and I never had a second date. Excuse me. I never wanted a Who second date. Who prints out an itinerary for a night out? I'm an uh, organized person. How, what kind of a diet? That's a... What is that's that, an argument from Jurassic World? <laughs> that's some that's some uh, sub moonlighting banner or banter from from Jurassic World. I was thinking while I was watching that of so many things. As your as this movie inspires you to do, one thing that had not occurred to me until I listened to that with only the sound is that I actually would have preferred if Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd had done that scene together. And I'm not even a Sybil Shepherd fan. <laughs> you're saying you would have preferred it to some people who had chemistry to do it together well yes and i also think i i should say off the bat i enjoyed this movie i enjoyed watching it i shame. don't think it's <laughs> where's my shame bell free me my shame bell uh, i mean i i enjoyed for what it is i enjoyed it i know that it's like faint praise but i think that this summer is going to be the summer where we get these throwback entertainments even even though they're kind of completely derivative and i'm not saying that like i'm so glad that this isn't a superhero movie 
Although maybe that is a little bit what I'm saying. What I'm actually saying is there's a kind of movie that has an inherent entertainment value that follows an old formula. And I felt like the, the formula this movie followed, which is not necessarily a, like the, the Steven Spielberg Jurassic Park model. This movie is, is and here comes your put down, uh, as far from Spielberg's Jurassic Park as you could probably get without being Lost World 3. Um, and I don't know. I like the kind of old fashioned ish nature of, of what this movie was trying to do. Um, you beg to differ. So go on, beg differ. Here's all right. I mean, I have a lot of questions. I wrote about it from the perspective of it being of this idea that the director, Colin Trevorrow, uh, was putting forth in a lot of interviews and it's there if you want it. It's there in the movie if you want to pick up on it. This idea that it is – it functions as criticism as well as, as a movie, as criticism of the thing that it is. That it's actually the – that there's an in-story criticism of the cloning and regeneration of blockbusters and how that is never a good idea. See, I don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> I, I don't mean, either. I don't buy that at all. Like that's a like sort of sub Tomorrowland – Anyway, go on. I think, well, yeah, but I think the difference is that with Tomorrowland, I, I believe that that was present in the screenplay. Like, for good or whatever you think of that idea and whatever you think of that as a, a sort of Not reason much. for a movie to exist, I think that that was present in the. Th that was an idea that Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, somebody had that idea before mm -hmm. they started shooting the movie. Right. The Jurassic Park as Godardian critique of uh, Jurassic World as Godardian critique of Jurassic Park sequels. I, I think that's probably a post-production kind of idea. That, shame, <laughs> shame. It's somebody came up with that and was like, "Yeah, yeah, this sucks, but it's it sucks for a reason." It's and we're trying to tell you, so yeah, exactly. You got it. Like it's like people, like, no, like you can't do that. You can't just be, you know. But yeah, there is because you know it's the, like I said, it's there if you want to pick up on it. There's it's not just you know as Robert Downey Jr. says in Iron Man, the man was not meant to meddle medley. There's something more specific going on, which is that it's about commercialism and it's about the colonization of your childhood by commerce and you know the ideas that. But then at the same time, you're just like you know what? This is just a Jurassic Park sequel where for some reason we're supposed to believe that it after all these times that it failed. They're finally they finally succeeded. They built a club med with dinosaurs or a sandals or whatever, you know, what's the like, Margaritaville. Right. Yeah, there's a Margaritaville. There's a shot of a Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. Jimmy Buffett played at the premiere, apparently. So that's all. It's all synergized. Yeah. I mean, OK, so I think we agree that 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 sort of meta premise is not something I buy the movie saying. I think it's a smart person sort of justifying his participation in something that is somewhat inherently unoriginal, right? Like, I think that this movie, this idea that, that, that they found a way to sort of take these dinosaurs and turn it into an actual functioning amusement park that people enjoy and that, you know, the reason that Chris Pratt's character, Owen Grady, who's a velociraptor, uh, genius he's found a way to train these like the among the most dangerous dinosaurs is being brought in to like inspect this new thing that that bryce dallas howard's character who's the park 
operations manager, basically his, his her her boss and his his science team uh, has created, is that interest in the park is now plateaued, and we need we need new monsters to to make people happy. Which is another um, blockbuster reference. It's that people yes. get jaded about things, and they need bigger, sharper teeth, scarier. They, there's all these th- lines about that. But I I again I I don't know that. This movie's cynicism, it is so, I mean, it is obviously perfectly cynical. I think that the thing that works about it for me is I just enjoyed watching some of the sequences. I liked the people in the movie. I think, like, Irfan Khan as the guy who owns the park, the eighth richest man in the world who owns Jurassic World. Um, I think he's, I think he's really wonderful. I loved, I really liked the idea that this is more than anything else, an Amblin entertainment movie that is most aware. I don't, I don't know that I necessarily buy it as, as being a, I don't buy it at all as being a critique of itself and the world in which it, it operates as a, as a commercial contraption. I do buy it as a somewhat childlike throwback to movies from the late 80s and early 90s that are just pure stupid fun i mean like actually just like like arachnophobia and harry and the hendersons and and you know monster movies that are somewhat designed but they you know the difference of course is that those movies weren't necessarily cynical although i would say that arachnophobia, arachnophobia, having watched that fairly recently, I didn't like it when it came out, and it's still not that great a movie now. But um, it is sort of in keeping with that tradition of of dumb entertainment that can be replicated, but but not really at the same time because it has a little bit of a sensibility. I think this movie has a little bit of a sensibility. I mean, you would argue maybe, or I'll just let you argue it. No, um, I. I think it's I think it's there and I think it is it's Amblin it's not just Spielberg it's Amblin specifically which is a different right, zone right, 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 of right. that you know it's it, it's all you know because it, 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 that's uh, also that's that's not necessarily just Spielberg because it's also Joe Dante and everything but uh, you know and that's you know I wrote about Gremlins 2 quickly in that review you know when I was when I was writing about like you know which is another like that's the critique there is really obvious like Gremlins 2 is a critique of Gremlins 1 you know, and yes. it's sort of talking and about the idea of sequels. And, you know, Leonard Malton is in that movie talking about how gremlins is bad and then the gremlins attack him. You know, it's very like it's it's all on the surface. I think the thing is that those movies just the what we're talking about, what we're comparing it to. I totally see the link. And I think Trevor Oates sort of has said that that was what he was going for specifically. That he wanted to make an Amblin movie like, you know, not just a it's not just a Spielberg movie. It's not, you know, because that's a vast category it's like a you know subcategory within that i just don't think the wit is there i don't think it has the wit of Mm -hmm. these movies that we're talking about and i think there's also you know what you miss you know because spielberg i was trying to think like what's really you know a a lot of people can do a special effects movie that's not the spielberg thing that's not the thing that Mm -hmm. you necessarily go to him for it's like just that just virtuosic emotional manipulation that happens in good spielberg Yes. And this is just this feels like he is just mashing the buttons on the controller trying to come up with some sequence of things that will make an emotional thing happen. 
right? Like that, it's just that's a really good point. It's that's just very true. it's it's like Brad, like there's a, like divorce and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's ovaries, uh, and the, you know then there's a, so a noble apatosaur hoary stuff. And yeah, the divorce thing is just you could have just lost that entirely. It has no impact, you know. And like the kid, the older son just has, it's like he has a conditional personality from moment to moment, and like you know it, it's just. You just – you realize sort of – because I thought about it. I remember thinking about it uh, watching uh, Godzilla, the the uh, Gareth – is it – I always get it if it's Edwards. Gareth Edwards? Edwards Godzilla. Yeah. The most recent, the new Godzilla, has a lot of, I think, successful Spielbergisms in terms of giving you human beings to be concerned for and root for and become involved with within – action sequences not necessarily like the larger story of you know like you know brian cranston and his son and their reconciliation and everything but there's just moments when it's like a kid and a dog and there's a tidal wave coming to get and you're suddenly like and suddenly like it doesn't matter that the, you know you zoom in on that and i thought a lot about that during that pterodactyl thing in jurassic world which is just a mess to look at it's and, a it's a mess, but <laughs> it's aw- look. It's awesome. I enjoyed it in a Gremlins two kind of way. No, I mean there's moments when it c- almost gets there, and I wish it had. If it was, if you're gonna go there, like go there, you know, just like and make it a real thing where it's like that you're seeing people like reacting, like well, I'm gonna sue this place, like just you know, it's it. Instead, it's just. <laughs> I think it becomes this metaphor for like the passivity of the audience in a situation like this, that they're just sort of, you know, they're like, you want it bigger and scarier? Here it is. And then we're just, we can't even respond. We're just going to pterodactyls all over you. (laughs) It is really like, you want pterodactyls? Here, you can go behind the house and smoke a whole pack of pterodactyls. That's, you know. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you make a very good point. And I was thinking about when you, it does, it does no one a service when you watch Jurassic world or watch jurassic park before or any time in the vicinity of watching jurassic world um you'd watch jurassic park has the thing that you're talking about the sort of the spiel the actual spielberg element of jurassic park i think is most visibly most viscerally apparent in that velociraptor scene in the lab Mm -hmm. which I don't. I didn't read the book. I don't know if this is in the book. It just feels like it, it probably it might be, but I feel like as a as a as a filmmaking feat, the suspense that you feel in that sequence, because at this point you really do feel like Spielberg would actually kill one of those kids, <laughs> like he actually would. And the, and you always sort of you you know he gets written off as being this wimp, and yes, Spielberg has his problems, and I, I don't think everything that he does is great, but he is a great filmmaker and i think that sequence for me i remember watching that as a as a you know a teenager just being like oh my god he could totally kill one of these kids who you might do it he might do it and you just never know and those velociraptors are really scary and the way he shoots them is scary and it is for me as close to like there are three sequences in that movie that are actually truly terrifying and I don't, I mean, this is a man at that point, it was 1993, he had been making movies for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, in a particular, you know, in, in, in 20, 20 years of a movie just about every other year. This is a guy who, I can't say, you don't feel like this is a person doing that, a sequence like that in his sleep, but there is a great deal of experience brought to bear on what makes a sequence like that work. It's so much easier to just like crap velociraptors all over people 
with you know in post-production and just i don't know i don't know how that sequence was actually shot in jurassic world but i'm just saying it's a lot easier to just like do chaos that way and have everything look and go haywire than it is to have two kids and like probably a golf ball just dangling in the air for whatever forever long they were required to sort of do reaction shots and that sort of thing and come out of the, of a of a sequence like that with with a truly terrifying you know 15 minutes of movie making yeah and you kind of know who those kids are and you know that if they're scared yes. it's a big deal and it's a, yes. and so much of it plays on the faces of those kids and like you know i mean the bet like you know the the jello scene i don't want to say the jello yes. shot but like that yeah like it's just there's so many things like don't if you haven't seen Jurassic World yet, like here's here's my recommendation: don't watch Jurassic Park first. That'll yeah. help. You don't have that. Don't have that in your head to compare it to. Yeah. No. I mean, also we should just say that Chris Pratt, lo- lovely human, I'm sure. Um, you just he's no he's not even Jeff Goldblum in this movie. I mean, he's meant to evoke all of these other iconic men in movies right like i mean at least for me i thought about harrison ford as indiana jones mm-hmm. i thought about michael douglas as his safari as, as kathleen turner's um pain in the neck uh in in romancing the stone and julian nile um but also in jurassic park jeff goldblum is so hot <laughs> in that movie you know not effortlessly in that he's not aware that he's hot the the reason he's so hot is because he knows he is and he's sort of trying to be neurotic past that, but he can't help it. He is just really sexy. And I find that Chris, Chris Pratt's like impersonation of a sexy person is just, it's kind of annoying to me. And I, I don't think that he has another mode and I, I want, all right, I shouldn't I wonder whether he has another mode. Cause I think this is what the movies are going to ask him to do. Oh, just do that forever? Yeah, just yeah. just do like karaoke Harrison Ford. Yeah, I mean, I, it, again, that's another one where I another thing where I sort of felt like, okay, if you're going to go there, really go there. There's a he's he's walking. I actually like him in this because I think that he's he found the right tone, even if the movie doesn't. I think it's sort of if you're gonna be if it's gonna be all received and we're gonna be like we all know the Jurassic Park was great. And we're gonna. I think there's something there's something sort of self parodying about it, and there's something arch about it that I enjoyed. Um, yeah, I don't dislike it. I'm just saying I think that this is this is its limit. I think this is its mm-hmm. outer its outer limit. Yeah, no, but I think that's the thing. I think that he's just going to continue because it, it's it's hard, right? Because he's the you know he's the comedy guy. He's all who's become the action guy, and it's gonna you know he's, there's I I don't know, but like, yeah, but, but what else is there? Is there going to be the really the serious Chris Pratt? moment chris pratt and regarding henry exactly where is the in chris the fugitive in presumed innocent right is he going to follow the harrison ford arc to its logical conclusion which is that you you strip out all of the things that people enjoyed about it gradually over time and you get there yeah no but i don't know i sort of i enjoy that i think he's you know he's he has the he has the right idea about how you should approach something like this I'm not blaming like. him. I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming him at all. I think he's, you know, he's he's in there. I just but think I the movie like... doesn't throw him any. There's there's nothing for him to hang it on in this movie because well, it's such a. Yeah. She Bryce Dallas Howard is. She's even worse. I mean, she sort of comes off even worse. You know, I mean, I feel like there's nothing there for her to play, and 
I mean, people have complained about her running around the movie in heels, which I kind of found, you know, I didn't find that insulting in the way other people have. I found it kind of funny, but I feel like she's never let in on and she got she gets no fresh joke. And she there's no she I mean, if, if Chris Pratt is sort of on the other side of the joke by the time we see him in the movie. You, you keep waiting for her to, like, get from behind her joke. Mm-hmm. Like, and so the, the joke is always on that character. And she, as an actor, has no, no way to get around that. Because she's not... I mean, I can't say that she's not a funny actress. I don't know. I mean, she's been cast in things that don't really quite let her be funny. I really like her a lot. Um, but it's funny because I don't think that she has... I don't think she's asked to do anything that is really challenging for her, except maybe, you know, to run and leap and jump and, 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 and hold that flare. She, you know, and at some point she's standing at the feet of these dinosaurs like Faye Ray or Jessica Lang, take your pick. Uh, and you're just like, this is a nice evocation, but I don't feel like think it's earned and it's certainly not triumphant. Um, I don't know. I, I, obviously this does not this movie does not hold up in conversation my enthusiasm for it is purely based on on what it achieves as a as an evocation of a of an era of movie making and how it like it matches the fun of watching some of those movies but as a movie i i can't say that it's great i just think like the achievement is that i mean if if we can even call it an achievement i think it does sort of it doesn't feel like completely unnecessary and it does give me a kind of entertainment that, that I like having at the movies in the same way that San Andreas does. Um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed being at this movie watching it. I mean, I certainly didn't anticipate carrying it with me when I left, but I had a good time. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the thing about it. I didn't have a bad time while I was watching it either. I just sort of, the minute I started thinking about it, it began to just come apart in my, the hands of my brain so well before we go i just think that one of the problems with this whole thing is i mean forget watching jurassic park before you go watch this movie i think for some people including this might be my problem a little bit too i mean i I didn't have it while i was watching it but i every every time i go to a movie i think about fury road when i leave like and just you know that that is a thing with a velociraptor sequence like but for two hours <laughs> it is really like 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 revolver or rubber soul came out this summer and there's a bunch of people who still have like herman's hermits records in the pipeline you know oh, and now good, have to put those good. things out That's, into this yeah. world it's yeah. they're like hey guys uh well <laughs> practical effects are cool again but here's a bunch of uh, velociraptors that can change color or whatever and we did that yeah, it's really funny. It's that the, the, they've just you know it's it, it's a high bar has been set for all of these but, things. It does. Yeah, don't see Fury Road before you see this if you plan to enjoy this one. Although you see know that what? one last. If if you're Universal, you're like hanging up the phone right now, counting that money. That's true. I guess we should I point mean, out that it is the number one opening of all time, Jurassic World. So this is how much. Kind of widespread critical disdain means in, yes. In a less in less than a week, it's made half a billion dollars. Half a billion dollars, billion. In With one a week. B, so, three commas. I'm not I'm not saying that to like excuse anything we just talked about, but I also like to sort of you know, to the studio's point, it's just like well you know whatever we did something right, and I would say they didn't do anything necessarily wrong. I just I don't know. 
I think that it's funny because at the end of the year, I mean, I will not be talking about this movie. I will be talking about Fury Road and, you know, what a good time I had at it. Same thing with, with San Andreas. Just had a better time. At, at Fury. I just Not even a better time at Fury Road. I just had my mind blown and my face melted. Kind of want that. I like that when I go to the movies. But I also like to, like, you know, I like to work the hula hoop for a little while, too. We'll be right back. Karen, what do you think of Pierce? Well, I think um, there are pros and cons to every candidate, so we just need to weigh up the pros and cons. Have you been sent from the future to destroy me? Because it's working! I think that each candidate has merits and demerits, and I don't know my left butt cheek from my right butt cheek, but I believe in listening to both butt cheeks and then farting out my asshole mouth. Okay. It's not even bullshit. Bullshitting takes talent. You have none. You are just a blah, 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 blah. Okay, Amy, <laughs> that is enough. I have bitten my tongue so long it looks like a dog's cushion. But no more. You have made it impossible to do this job. You have two settings. No decision and bad decision. I wouldn't let you run a bath without having the Coast Guard and the fire department standing by. But yet, here you are running America. You are the worst Thing that has happened to this country since food in buckets and maybe slavery. I've had enough. I'm gone. Well, I guess she's finished with her little. Yeah, that's uh. It goes on. She comes back, but yeah. It goes on. She comes. Amy comes back. That's a seed from uh from Veep this season. That's season. season. That's episode five of season, uh, season four. four. Um and. I don't. We've never talked about this show. I I I've been wanting to for for its entire run, um, or for as long as we've been on. We've had this show while Beep's been on. Um, I just find the the writing on this is the. I think this is the best written comedy on television. Um, I mean, there are things that come close to it that are currently on TV. Although, really, honestly, no. Silicon Valley and and um unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and I and we never talked about last man on earth either but I think that is also well written but this like the the bar is much higher for this show I think there's more going on with it there are more people to sort of keep straight and it is also based on like a real place that has real that the where decisions are made that have actual consequences and there's a satire afoot in every episode and it, the show never loses sight of 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 mocking both politics, the people in politics, and Washington culture generally. And I, that is such a hard thing to do. And they've been doing it now for I don't know what uh, forty eight episodes of TV. Yeah, well, four seasons, four of those uh, HBO seasons is about that. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really hit a groove in season four that. I didn't always love it. I always liked it. I always appreciated mm-hmm. it. I always thought there were, I always, you know, there were a bunch of performances in it that I really liked, but I kind of, I couldn't help comparing it to the thick of it and in, in the loop because those are the Armando sure. Iannucci is the creator of those things. Uh, those, those, those uh, are British shows, great British TV shows. Right. It's kind of the same idea basically, except British politics. And then in the you know in the loop is sort of both because it's about Washington and um, uh, that's really great that's the easiest thing to see and you should if you're curious about going back you should totally go back 
Uh, I think that that was on Netflix for a while, streaming. So it probably still is. Is it no longer? I just, you know, things drop off. I don't ever want to promise the things are there. Yeah, Netflix is weird that way, parenthetically. Anyway. This is our look. This is why it's dangerous. Our drug, you know, this is the, that's the only place. That's why you got to keep a video store membership to a physical video store. Support your physical video store. I recommend it. I, I'm with you, Alex. Don't. I mean, although they just closed my Hollywood Express yeah. in Porter Square, it's going out of business. Oh, that was, that was the, my first job. Yeah, that was the. Vi- I remember this. I remember like that's that's a bummer. That's 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 the worst. Adult job. But anyway, I, if you can find out, a physical video store, yeah, shout to Video Journeys in Silver Lake, which is my oh. spot. Um, That's nice. And actually, and it's a really good video store. That's not just because it's the only one around me, but uh, yeah, no. So this is, uh, but this season has been really amazing. They just, it's, it's achieved some kind of density. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there needed to be more characters. Weirdly, I think they needed to sort of build out. I don't know if the uh, the, the head count has actually gone up or down, but it feels like there. I think it's, it's gone just, up. There's so many at this point. When something happens now, it ripples out so far through all of these people. It's like, <laughs> and the best thing about it is that everybody now, no matter what, everyone has even Jonah. Has a subordinate. He has Richard Splett, who's I think my uh, favorite character. That on television guy, this Sam <laughs> Richardson, who plays that part, <laughs> that is that guy is a genius. Everybody on this show is great. I mean, Julia Louis Dreyfus can't argue with that. Um, uh, Tony Hale is great. Anna Klumski's great. All but the way down. I just want but... to say there, there are two. There are two great. I mean, there's a bunch of great performances on this show, but the, I think the two best are Sam Richardson's. And Sarah Sutherland, who plays Catherine Meyer, Selena's daughter. Mm-hmm. Who's had more time this season. She's had more time this year. I think Sufi Bradshaw plays Sue is also great. I think those are the three. Those are my three favorite performances. But Sam Richardson is like on a level alone by himself. This is a guy, I mean, who's such a stereotype on, you know, in popular culture, right? Just a black guy who doesn't really know, who doesn't really have a job he's kind of but he's a bad butler he's basically a you know for all practical purposes a butler i I think um when selena was she inherits him from a campaign stop in iowa maybe i can't remember now how how she gets him yeah it's something like like, it's one of those things in the tour in the campaign when they're on the road right he's like toilet oh no it was like a book tour or something right it was when the book came out Right, which is her sort of backdoor run for the presidency, and so he—that's why he sort of he comes in in the book that yeah, the book world. He's like a volunteer. So he uh, he becomes like toilet paper on her shoe, more or less, and he the show keeps him, and he's so funny because what he's doing is I don't know. I mean, as as comedy as acting, I don't know. I'm not an actor. I feel like it's impossible to do what he's doing every week because the joke. I feel like the like he as an actor, Sam Richardson as an actor, has to find the jokes that are given him, and this is partly like like how good Ianucci and and his writers and directors are. Um, they it, it just the magic to make a character like that mean something more than the stereotype that he initially seemed to be. Because I mean, ultimately, anybody could have played this part from a like. I mean, it's not like the part has to be a a black guy. But that he is sort of loads it with this weird, it's just freighted with all this extra meaning that can potentially be uncomfortable. And I don't know. It's just that guy. I'm so glad that you think he's. No, there's something about it's his, this, this relentless good cheer. 
even though yes. he's just yes he, he's just so he's so happy and he's like like he goes home every night that character goes home every night feeling like he has really made a difference and like he's so excited that, that like there's no because you have this whole group of people who are all miserable right like they're all just they and hate nasty their lives. And like just, they're full of contempt and venom to each other and like yeah just like just creeps and like they're, they're the worst people like pretty much you know to a man in the White House, and then, but Richard thinks that he's really doing a good job. Like that he's like he's you he killed it again. You right, know, I don't right, think there's right. any darkness. There's no core of darkness to anything that he's doing, and somehow it's just you know. But also, it's just it's it's nice because the one the one thing about this show is that there are a lot of lines that sound like lines. You know that somebody mm-hmm. wrote a really good insult. That's like phrased really clever. It's a really clever insult, and like everybody has because it's like a world where everybody has Armando Iannucci and like his you know staff kind of writing great lines for them. And there's something about Richard. Just all of his jokes are based on just just chiming in or like going mm-hmm. this, like be like show being like solo meeting. Well, let's go. Like all of those. Like there's something that his. It's not based on kind of great zingers in that way, and so it's a different style of humor that comes into it. Um, right. It's not just the writing. It's like how yeah. this guy takes the lines he's given and how he's directed to deliver them. It's it's. He's great. And I also, the thing about this show that I think is really interesting, and in, in, in season four, which I think is its best season, because the, the darkness sort of creeps in and kind of threatens to take the show over, you know, I think Selena Meyer's narcissism becomes a lot more acidic. And I think that the, the idea of, of Amy being, her, her being replaced by this dingbat tautologist um karen what's her face um i think it's is it karen uh i forget i just looked up i'll her never name. i wanted to get i want i looked up her name lennon parham is the name of the actress yeah. um, um but she like she brings in this woman karen collins is her name and she and she's a friend of of selena's and she just has no opinion about anything and that's her that's her joke and i think that the way in which this sort of completely featherweight human being brings out these sort of deep, heavy, emotional reactions from people, especially Amy, who winds up quitting the campaign and then going to work at a, at a consultancy with Dan, who also leaves. Um, it, it just, I don't know, like, the you're right, the expansion of this world into places that, like, some people need to leave that, that bubble in order to get into other bubbles in D.C., yeah. So that you have this kind of network that starts to form um, that where they can start to satire these other aspects of, of how Washington politics works. Right. That um, the, they go to the consultancy and it's even worse in some right. ways. But also the lobbyists are also off. Yeah. And also it brings out a different thing for, uh, uh, you know, for uh, uh, for Amy and for Anna Klumsky to play as Amy, because suddenly you realize that she wants to be as as much as, you know, she has had it with this administration as anyone would. You know, and like that and this woman Karen's involvement is the last straw and like she's just hilariously terrible. And like you can totally that clip that we played is her just breaking as a result of one too many of those sort of interactions with her where she has no opinion. But then you realize that she sort of she ultimately like she she too kind of wants to be back there and wants to make a difference. And in this, you know, this last of this finale, she wants to get back. She needs to be back with the president like in, in right. that moment, like she's she's drawn back to it. it's not it's not, you know, so she's different from Dan, who just kind of wants to be on whatever 
ship is, you know, whatever's winning, right? Yeah. Whatever the winning team is. And he will change. <laughs> he's hilariously like in the course of like a TV appearance, will change sides to do that. Yeah. So like, yeah. I really, it, I, I've always, I've always appreciated this show and thought it was well done and thought, you know, but this was, this was the season where I feel like it really, and it's going to, this is the last Ianucci's last season. It's, I guess it's going to continue, but he's not going to continue with it. And so this felt like a, you know, it felt like a curtain call. Like he wanted to kind of just, you know, just kill it for one last year. And they yeah, did. I mean, it, well, it's funny. Well, I won't ruin what happens in the final episode, but yeah. it seems like what happened in the final episode seems like a fitting end for his involvement with this show. Yeah. Um, being like not declaring anything, anything. Um, but I just, I, I feel like the level of difficulty for the show is so high and there are so many people had to have to be on the same page to get these jokes to work, which is, you know, another Ianucci staple. But I feel like watching a bunch of people who are a lot of people I've never seen before. I'd never seen Sufi Bradshaw before. I'd never heard of Sam Richardson before um, or Reed Scott, who I probably, I guess, had seen in things, but it never really noticed him or Timothy uh, Simons, who plays Jonah um, alongside these comedy these sort of improv people and veteran actors like Kevin Dunn, you get all these people on the same page and you just, I don't know, like the chemistry these people have together is just, is just a magical thing. And then this season they drop in the middle of this, um, Hugh Laurie who plays, uh, the replacement vice president, Tom James. Candidate. Yeah. And he's really good. Um, and they keep finding things about him to be surprising. Like you think, you know, she, you know, Selena's constantly nervous that he's going to upstage her because people love him because he's inherently presidential because he's a tall, very articulate, kind of handsome white guy. And he's just the person who just he just looks presidential. And she's very nervous about, you know, people asking him or, you know, or like, you know, praising him. And she's constantly like, I made a good choice, didn't I? Didn't I, America? I made a good choice, it, yeah. right? And that just, I don't know, that's never not funny. I mean, I thought that the second to last episode, which is the, is it the second to last episode? Of the, which one is the, is, is the, is the hearing about the. This last week, it was the second to last. It was before yeah. the, the penultimate where they actually, yeah. <laughs> I That was, I mean, I thought the fifth episode of this show, which, the, which is the clip that we just played and that, and that episode, that, that hearing with all of the, the the depositions and and the the sort of live congressional hearing i thought that was just you were watching these people that you like you know in house of cards it's inherently corrupt you know everybody is evil or everybody has the potential to become evil to get what they want it was interesting watching a show in which cartoon characters suddenly become shakes or I mean, this is sort of saying that, that Shakespeare didn't have a buoyant side. But I know what you mean. To watch people from a Shakespeare comedy move into, like, Richard III yeah. was just really fascinating to me. It was uh, – I mean, it's interesting. It's it's kind of like – like, the Seinfeld finale was like that in a way, right? Ah. It reminded me of the Seinfeld finale a little bit where suddenly yeah. they were called <laughs> – these people were mm. called to account for all their terribleness over the course of the thing. And that's La that's Larry David kind of editorializing about what Seinfeld actually was about all along, which is that these people are actually awful. They're sociopaths. And, you know, then like he goes and go does curb your enthusiasm, like, which is just, just doesn't make any bones about that. But yeah, no, to see all those people kind of stand up there and be subjected, like listen, <laughs> reading the nicknames that they gave Jonah, 
<laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, to read those in public and everything. It's. I uh, just also found that like the scandal itself actually is pretty bad. Yeah, no, it's a totally plausible I mean, scandal. It's not like that <laughs> element. That it's pl- it's well, it's pretty bad, but it's also completely believable. Like it could happen tomorrow and to anyone. That's the other thing. And it's to not- anybody, and that it just isn't. They have to sort. They're all lying. You're watching a bunch of liars lie. Yeah, trying to get away and with it. That is the craziest part of all the dissembling, the obvious lying, the thing that that Kevin Dunn's character Ben does, which is like just throw, like take a moral high ground to seem like he's being insulted by having to answer any of these questions. It's really disturbing, and yet it's also really funny. And once you come, I mean, we've only gotten one episode after that, and it's the election episode, and you kind of find yourself feeling really dirty for wanting her to win. Yeah. Like, you actually want her to lose, but, I mean, I think your TV identification training makes you want her to win, but I actually wanted her to, I I, I didn't even wrestle with this, I wanted her to lose. Yeah, I mean... I don't want this woman running this country. (laughs) But it's also plausible, the thing is that they, they managed to do something which is, I think, really hard, which is, they all seem like idiots, to want to a certain some degree or another, you know, or but it is never it's never implausible that they would be running the country. Right. And They're I don't mean that. Like I don't mean that in man. a way like these bozos up in Washington. I mean, that there's never <laughs> it never it somehow manages to cro- never cross that line into like the police academy of government or something. Right. Where no, you're just like it's... these people would be stripped of their responsibilities in two seconds because they're obviously morons. And like no one would you know, this is just it's, it's there's no it's not credible that this would go on. Like it actually t- makes total sense. And that that hearing episode reminds you that they are good at the one thing that you have to be good at, which is staying in power. Like and staying in office like you can't they can't really get anything done they can't accomplish anything selena ends up defeating her own bill or i think right, she, right. like see the one thing that she's going to do in like she kind of inherits the presidency like and the one thing that she's going to do is uh, this you know families this meaningless kind of family's first bill and then like she manages to get it killed that is her accomplishment she manages to stop it from happening that she, you know but yeah no i find that i find that believable it walks that line really well without becoming also like we're going to teach you something about government and about getting into some kind of Aaron Sorkin kind of K Street kind of way. yeah we're never being lectured about anything no like it, I mean I think the, the the brilliance of the show is it understands what we understand about government and it doesn't quite flatter our sense of of, of how corrupt it is it it actually does something a lot more oblong which is in in many ways you know as an intelligent as intelligent people watching the show more gratifying because it doesn't not believe in government and it doesn't not believe in people. It just thinks that like the system as it's set up is inherently made for venality. And the show is sort of really interested in exploring that exploitation. I don't know. I it's it's really great. It's really I mean, there's just nothing I I've laughed even when I'm not laughing on that show. I am. My jaw is dropped and then I laugh. Yeah, there's just certain things that are just you'll, you'll be. Yeah, you'll just be enjoying it. But then something will come along. <laughs> just actually like I, I'm a big Mike McClintock fan. We're big Mike McClintock people at our house as well. Oh, um, that's I, I've poor Mike, poor stupid Mike. <laughs> Mike actually is an idiot. 
<laughs> yeah, some people are just legit, just just morons. <laughs> um, yeah, it's fantastic. Also, like shout to I just want to we we got to finish up, but like this, and we're we're moving on. We're going to talk about Paul Beatty in a minute, but just I want to say shout to them, shout to Ianucci or whoever's decision this was to have Hugh Laurie play the nicest person. That's the yeah. other thing that's really interesting, like to bring House into it. Which is probably that's his conditional at this point. He's probably like, I don't want to go be another asshole for another season of what television. I've done that, but yeah, to have him play the the, the sweetest man in that room, relatively speaking, without right. having him be like a sap, he's still you again. You believe that he would have gotten this far politically, but that he's actually like a good human being, and he's like, what have I gotten myself into with these people? And I love that about it. Yeah, that's great. All right, we'll be right back with the sellout. Why you no rhythm, afraid of women, asexual, pseudo-intellectual, ball mount, Fuji-shaped head, no booty, having big nose, size 13 feet, pigeon toe, crook-footed, Taco Bell, burrito, supreme, eating, daydreaming, no jump shot, can't dunk, comic book, reading, nutrition, needed, knock, need, sap, suck, a non-driving, anti-fashion, constantly depressed, clumsy, no money, take your weak-ass poems and go back to Los Angeles. That is Paul Beatty on MTV sometime in the 90s when... There was a time, kids, MTV wanted you to enrich yourself with poetry. They wanted to turn you on to things. And uh, that was uh, the poetry of Paul Beatty was one of those. He was a poet. Uh, his first novel was The White Boy Shuffle. And I think uh, 90, what do we do? We've talked about this, right? It's like 93, 94, something like that. Uh, White Boy Shuffle is 96. 96. 96. Pardon yeah. me. And I'm pretty sure it's 96. And that was the last. Uh, that was the last thing of his that I read, and uh, un- until this, which it, I'm really sorry that it took me as long to finish it as uh, as it did. It took me nine. This, it, <laughs> I think this. Listen, I am biting my tongue. I'm not saying anything. You have a life to live. It took me 19 months to read this book, which is two uh, under 300 pages in length. And uh, I'm very sorry about that, partly because this is one of the best novels I've read in a while. It's really, really, really funny. And I just want to say, like, beyond everything else that goes on in it, there's a lot of really interesting things brought to the surface in it. But it's also just like shout to shout to the comic novel. Because there are not yeah. enough of those. There are not enough. Hard to do. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, you know, we've sort of, it's, it's weird. It's like literature has just, has seeded humor to the humor section. In, it's just in there with this, the Sniglets and the Garfield books. Or some people just sneak it into books. I mean, there are lots of, like, more serious books that have these, that have funny passages. Yeah. Well, every, yeah, exactly. But there's not, I feel like it's, the, the, we, we, like, humor has gone out of, you know, of, serious fiction in a lot of ways yes. I'm, I'm, to my, I'm agreeing the with way you. that I, I'm I think you probably you read more novels than I do I would say so you probably know better but that's my that's my feeling and so I would I, I appreciated this because it's you know as much as it you know it's it's about and it's weird because as I was reading it like I'm, I'm I am kind of glad that I waited long as long as I did to read it because it was a great experience to open this book up this weekend and last weekend <laughs> Um, we should okay. So first of all, we should explain what the book is, which is you know essentially it's about a about a guy, a young man. I don't know. He's probably more like youngish. He's like forty, and um, he his he's raised somewhat abusively by like his psychologist father, who 
uses him on all kinds of uses him as a, as a guinea pig and all kinds of experiments. Father dies. He inherits his farm in this South Los Angeles neighborhood called Dickens, um, which is like an agrarian ghetto, basically, according to to Paul Tuff. I mean, to Paul Tuff. <laughs> to Paul uh, Tuff is another one of Paul Beatty's books. Uh, Paul Beatty. Um, he winds up on trial uh, at the Supreme Court, more or less. I mean, not his his case. The case against him winds up at the at the Supreme Court. And he is, he stands accused of slave ownership uh, because at some point he takes into his employ, his only employee actually, is a former little rascal, the but, like uh, basically the buckwheat of the crew. He was in late buckwheat. His name there is, is already a buckwheat, yes. He's the guy who comes in after buckwheat. Yes. And yes, takes over yes. that that slot in the later. And there's a lot of really great uh, made up plots for uh, Little Rascals shorts that uh, Hominy starred in. Um, yeah. So he takes yes, on this. Hominy Jenkins. Yep. <laughs> the last surviving member of the group um, begs to be his slave and just can't imagine a life f- as a free black person. He needs to basically become um the narrator's slave um so he does it reluctantly and you know those actions over the course of the novel it takes most of the book to get there but we eventually he eventually gets found out and um arrested and put on trial uh along the way many many comic mishaps a lot of which involve explanations of things as opposed to i mean there's really no plot i mean Narrator has a girlfriend that he, you know, his, his longtime girlfriend on again, off again, Marpresa, who drives a bus. There are parties on her, on her city bus. Um, there's a, like, I think, I think the best passage in the book involves his erection of a fake charter school. Um, the other thing that he's on trial for basically also is not just slave ownership. He wants to resegregate, basically, he's, he's, he's resegregating um, Dickens. And in, in saying that, you know, there are no whites allowed in most places, like in, in, in the buses for coloreds only. Well, yeah, he rest- he restores the but doesn't he, he restores the white only seating on the bus? Yes, right? the white only. Yes, 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 he's yes, basically he's recreating uh, the, the sort of old school racism. Like he's Jim putting Crow the, South, the, the, the cla- like racism classic, you know, right. like just sort right. of in the red can. No more of this institutional you know too subtle it's just too subtle for me like there is nothing like old school jim crow racism to really tell you where you stand as a black person um or as a white person which in this case would not be at the public school which is where all the white people want to send their kids once the numbers go up at the segregated school (laughs) right and so he recreate (laughs) the marching of these five white kids into this into this black and hispanic public uh, black and hispanics only uh public school and they're basically kept out by the by the george wallace of the school whose name is charisma what's charisma's last name um oh, no anyway he keeps her out she keeps them out and charisma uh, molina yes 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 uh anyway that there's some just really great writing around what it means to be what segregation means what 
what blackness means. I mean, I, I'm sort of torn about how much I like this book because I think a lot of it is something that feels to me written by a person who's, who's written a lot of poetry um, and has a lot to say about a lot of things, but not a lot of sort of narrative to do with it. And so at some point he is just oozing the page with observations and jokes and puns and, and, you know, bits of satire and things that obviously get on his nerves. He doesn't purport to have a solution. His ultimate solution is the satirical solution of segregation. But beyond that, um, you know, it's just an opportunity for him to make fun of a lot of different types of people and places and things and ideas. Um, and some of that really works. And then some of it for me feels like, like it's rushed. I mean, I think the last, I mean, I think there are 26 chapters in this book. I think the last six, just they come at such a rapid clip and there's so much, there's so much joking being done in them. And I wish that, you know, in some ways this book, it either needed to be a hundred pages or it needs to be 500 pages. Um, Cause there's a lot that, ha- I don't know. I mean, I think in some ways this is what happens when you do a satire is that you like in that invariably you have more to satire than you do clothesline to hang the satire on. Yes. I think, I, I, I think you're right about it, that it, it could have been longer. And I think you're right about the narrative does not exactly uh, whip you along. That's a terrible choice of words for this context. Jeez. It's contagious. What are you going to do? <laughs> My God. I meant it does not pull you a lot. Good Lord. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're saying. There is sort of there are just gems and, you know, Mario gold coins on every page of this. There's something amazing, just some random sort of observation. Like it feels like a poet wrote it in the sense that like there are lines that kind of just will they just kind of pick you up and drop you in a place that you did not expect to be dropped at the end of the sentence. You know, right. like there's right. sort of, like it's just it's it, like it's it's clearly someone who's accustomed to, you know, those kind of you know changes in perspective. I mean, there's just like I just have been opening it to things like just a random description of uh, two uh, gang members hanging out at a, a, a civil war reenactment of a gang rumble sort of civil. Yeah. You know, like a, <laughs> that is, that is straight out of Ralph Ellison, that sequence. Yeah. A lot of I this mean, there's reminded things... me of, a lot of this reminded me of that, except it's like, I feel like it, like invisible man is a satire, but it's not, it's not trying to be funny necessarily. This is like right. the funny version of that, but it's still, it's, it's, it does, it does, it did remind me of that. Yeah. So the, and it's, I mean, but it also is as disgusting and as grotesque and a oh, lot, yeah. I mean, not necessarily in that sequence, but there's a sequence, there's a sequence in which they, it's a, it's a, it's a racist movie film festival and <laughs> at the new art, which is nice. Yes. At the new art and his description. I mean, that is, that is the, I would say the best written passage and the most effective passage in the book because it manages to make you physically ill or at least made me physically ill i mean i was i read that on the train and was just like i have to get off the train i'm i'm very my body is not enjoying this at all um and it's so well described and i think also i think parts of this book are unfair i think there are things about this there are jokes told on characters or you know their real life corollaries there are ideas that he makes fun of that i think uh, he as a satirist is risking you know willingly and knowingly risking offense and i think they're unfair i think that portion of the book is i think the most fairly critical and and like 
most clearly vividly realized as a as a as a as a feat of writing um and everything that he wants to do as a thinker and as a and as a novelist come across and as a satirist and as a comedian come across in that you know 15 or 20 pages it's so it's very very good but there is i mean you're right it's really dense there's a lot going on in there and you have to you have to really you have to read it carefully to see sort of see what's what's going on because there's there's characters being introduced that late in the book that are kind of important you know right like the, no and I, and i don't know i think there's a there's a good joke in there too the too many mexicans the 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 build up to the punchline for that um <laughs> there's a chapter in the book called there's a section in the book um the second section is called too many mexicans or the, not the second section. I think it's like the third or fourth. Anyway, the the build up to the punchline for that and what he wants to do with the school is really funny. Um, but the reason that Alex, you might want to explain why you said the timing of your reading this book is actually perfect. Yeah, uh, it was interesting to to be reading this because I, I I read the bulk of it over two weekends and not during the week, and so it was it was very much contextualized by uh, two situations. Obviously. Finishing this book, thinking about uh, Rachel Dolezal. I don't. I've never said her name out loud. That works. I, I think that's probably well, whatever. Um, thinking about that story, thinking about just like the that as just a symbol of the the just the ongoing weirdness of our relationship to race in this country, of white people's relationship to blackness. Yes, Rachel Rachel Dolezal being the person, the woman yeah, who sorry. lives in Spokane, Washington, who uh, is it? Spo- it's Spokane. Spokane. Uh, who impersonated? A, lived for many years. I wouldn't impersonation is a, is a strong word. I would say um, she worked for the NS. She was like NAACP like official who basically identified herself as a, as a black woman. She was a and, she was a white woman and a black activist, but also yes, yes. did not. I it's it's not totally clear like you know, but she you know there are some there are like instances of her checking boxes on things. Yes, and you know more important is that she fabricated this backstory for herself that includes like things that are just beyond insane. She sued Howard University for. I mean, the, this story is this book. That's There's a, another yeah. book that is also out right now called Mislaid by Nell Zink. That is, I mean, we could easily have done that book for this for the for the book of the month club, and it is it is disturbingly. It, I mean, that book is also a satire. It's a little broader than this book, but it is also it also features a white woman passing for black. But and so the timing. I don't know. We are living in the craziest possible racial moment because. There's a lot of agency on both sides in terms of, you know, who is able to, you know, she is the ability to sort of pass herself off as black or to identify as black, not as African-American, she was clear to point out, but as black. And there's a, there's a huge difference between those two things for me. And, you know, black media's ability to sort of tell her that she isn't a black woman. Um, and so you have this sort of ontological tug of war. And this like socio-economic tug of war because, you know, if I, Wesley Morris, wanted to pass as white, I, I mean, I just wouldn't be able to. Like, I mean, phenotypically, there is almost nothing I can do to make myself look white. 
I can identify, but I mean, and this is sort of what she's doing. Um, but she's not actually, she made herself look black or as, as um, much as she could given as much as she could. I yeah. mean, it's, <laughs> it's just, I mean, this story is crazy, but the point at which it meets up with the Paul Beatty book is that, I mean, I mean, that's the point. I mean, the insane part is where it meets up with the Paul Beatty book. And also this idea that, well, there's None that whole thing at the means... end. I was thinking of it because of the end of it, the uh, non-ironic blackface thing at the towards yes. the end of the book, where a, there's at the, at the racist film festival, a fedora young white man stands up to challenge someone for doing non-ironic blackface, and he's like, "That's not cool." And specifically, he's like, "That's non-ironic blackface, and that's not cool." Um, right, right, there's right. there's layers of craziness. Anyway, and I think saying. this sort of meets up with that. What was the other thing that you? Well, the other thing I was just thinking about, because before all this happened, uh, you know, the, the weekend before was the incident in McKinney, Texas, where the police were called uh, on account of a group of African-American teenagers were at the pool. Yeah. Someone believed that they should not be there, called the police on them. There was a whole situation. You know, it's weird because one of the th- – one, of, you know, another symbol of the craziness of this time is that it, – it, it's weird that that happened and the response was was like, oh, that actually that went well, all things considered, like the, the, the way that things have been. But over the yes, – you know, The McKinney the, pool party incident is, is – I mean, also totally fascinating. Totally fascinating. Totally insane. I mean, a, a symbol of of things that are terrible, like a symbol of like you know larger sort of problems that are terrible problems, and that have often been, led to much worse things happening to people. And like you know, yes. when your when your response to an event is, oh, that went really well because no children got shot for no reason. But it's There's, just right. You're right. able to so like look. I mean like this is the one that you're able to sort of you know it's 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 it, I think it's not ghoulish to find some humor in this even though it's the police officer's name in that in the, at the McKinney pool party police corporal Eric Case Bolt Case Bolt Eric Case Bolt talk about I a just, Chris Pratt just, character I mean, <laughs> running around in life. But also, no, there's the moment that, that like it fell out of the it just fell out of Paul Beatty's book. I know that's the it's like it's as if you you have the feeling when you read this book, it's got like four endings. It's got at least like two epilogues on it. Yes, that almost yeah, that true. feel a little tacked on and feel a little bit. And I don't know that that's how this this went necessarily in terms of the writing, but it does feel like life was. You get the feeling that th- he's he, things. This book was being pushed into the realm of like not even being satire as he was writing it, and he had to keep sort of trying to stay abreast of it but no so like you get from the mckinney thing like there's the you know the horrible image of i don't know that it's case bolt himself but it's like you know who like like you know sitting on this girl in a bikini who clearly presents no threat to anyone like that's a terrible image but before that you have the moment when they arrive and it's in the youtube video when the police first run up the guy the barrel roll yeah the barrel roll <laughs> is one of the funniest things I've seen in a, such a outside long time. Outside of a Paul Blart movie. Uh, outside yeah. of a... Yeah. It's funnier than anything that happens in a Paul Blart movie. It's like the guys who are the makers of the Paul Blart movies. Like, oh, like we should have gotten there. And it's, you know, again, it's a symbol. It's like they, they think that it, it's as if like, Al, you know, Al-Qaeda has formed a beachhead in McKinney, Texas, and they're ready for that. They've been trained for that. And it's, I mean, we have this sort of, you know, we've like militarized the police and everything. And like that's like all it, that it, what it symbolizes is awful. 
But in that moment, there's something about, and I think it's something about the proximity to like legitimate awfulness that makes it so kind of cathartically funny to see this guy do this barrel roll and just think about the delusion of heroism that's going on in this guy's head where he really thinks that he is, it's not, he, he doesn't think that he's Paul Blart. He thinks right. that he's, I, I don't even know like what the, you know, Harry Callahan. Yeah. Something, yeah, 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 something no, like I mean, that. It, you know, he thinks he's, it's yeah, true. exactly. He's swinging into action. Uh, he thinks he's so, a Navy SEAL. And like, that's what's so hilarious about it. And like, there are things in this book that I think it, 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 this book has the feeling of that has the it's like that kind of laughter because it's the proximity to things that aren't funny at all. But there's something about someone finding the finding the light between those two things and finding us you know, telling jokes in that space that's really cathartic and really funny. And like that, that's what I enjoyed about it. It's definitely all your criticisms are valid, um, but that's how yeah, I, I enjoyed it for that reason. And yeah, no, I mean, and, and yet at the same time, it's incredibly cathartically funny. Um, that's Paul Blart. Paul Blart. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> Paul Beatty's the sellout, not Paul Blart. Paul, Jesus, I would watch God, Paul Beatty me. Mall Cop, by the way. Anytime. Um, I would I would watch that. I think we just read it, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think we just read it. This has been, uh, it's, it's been interesting. Ornette Coleman passed away, uh, I think it's, it's five days ago now, as we're doing this show. And I, I don't. I'm. I've. I've. I've written about music a lot in my life. I've not really written about jazz. I don't really. I. I. I sort of just know what I like. You know. I don't have a lot to say about it. Uh, but one of the things that I liked, one of the guys that I really liked, was Arnett Coleman. He was kind of the last, one of the last of the giants, really. Uh, yep. WKCR.org, out of New York. Uh, has been doing they basically the minute he his uh, passing was announced they switched over to an all or net format which goes until Wednesday so you will hear this there it's probably you can catch the tail end of it when you hear this it has made me appreciate him even more I was a, I was a fan of certain things and now I'm kind of a fan of all of it I'm like yeah. as a result of listening to this I'm a fan of the like the primetime stuff which kind of sounds like a talk show band being dangled out a window yeah, but it, it's really it's it's kind of amazing just just to listen to it. I mean, he basically like he had a system. He had his own sort of system. He called it harmonics. I've never he read never an stopped exp- improvising on that either. Like yeah, improving upon it. Never stopped innovating. I've never read an explanation of it that made sense, including his own explanations of it. But uh, it, it, it made for some amazing music that's unlike anything you've ever heard and just kind of, I mean, it, it goes so far out and yet still manages to keep a foot in swing in the blues in a fascinating way. Uh, go check this out. You can make your own all Ornette radio station with any of the various streaming things. This song is called Lonely Woman. Uh, it's from The Shape of Jazz to Come uh, from 1959. Uh, I mean... But you could get to tone dialing, which I think is from '95, and still, and not have. I mean, just just throw a rock, you will hit brilliance and genius and and innovation and just beautiful music. Ornette Coleman, you're a god, man. You're a god. Everybody, nice jam, Alex. Try to live more uh, harmonically, Wesley. Thank you. Thanks to thank Joseph you. Fuentes. Thank you to David Jacoby. 
thank you to Harlan for being relatively quiet in this room while we're recording, moving things around. And uh, good night to Orna Coleman. to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.